Today we come to uh, what is a fifth message in a series that I've entitled Cultural Creeds. It's a, a special series that we have been taking time to look at, uh, focusing on what are some popular proverbs that, that sort of reverberate throughout our, our nation and our society. And there are a number of uh, important reasons that we're doing this, not least of which that these are really just a concerted effort to catechize uh, not only us, but everyone into a new kind of belief system, a new kind of morality that is summarized in these little sayings. And, and so we need to be aware of what's going on and we need to measure these and weigh these statements against the truth of God's word because while they purport to be some sort of a statement of wisdom, they are weak attempts at wisdom. In fact, they are thinly veiled deceptions. And I just should mention again, if you're here with us for the first time, this is not uh, ordinary for us. I typically like to do verse-by-verse teaching through books and chapters of the Bible, but we are taking a break from that normal course, uh, our study in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, to take a look at some of these uh, sort of modern-day mantras and to uh, help ourselves to be equipped and, and to think carefully about them. We've already spent... Four weeks doing this, looking at statements such as love is love, or live your truth, or my body, my choice, or last week, no human is illegal. We've been, we've been touching on these, not because they're easy to deal with or even popular to deal with, but because it, we must, as the church, have a clear voice when we are speaking into the, the culture around us and, and even answering some of its claims. These are not easy to deal with, not because the truth is unclear, but because they are so often emotionally charged, sometimes incredibly divisive, both in the culture and in the church, and so easy to offend people when you are trying to address some of these claims, not to mention that some of them even deal with subject matter, which just a generation ago would have been considered shameful to even speak of in public. But But because of the onslaught of the world, we have no choice now. And maybe in times past, you could have isolated yourself from certain institutions, maybe even avoided certain forms of entertainment, and been somewhat insulated against some of these things. But nowadays, you're confronted in almost every corner of your life. Every supermarket, every retail store, every restaurant you go into, it's blaring in the background music, the billboards, the the media that is all around us, even the news programs, the casual conversations and the educational venues that we find ourselves in. Unfortunately, even in Christian circles and in in Christian ministries and outlets, you're beginning to hear some of these things repeated. Some pulpits, some churches have uh, even endorsed them. So we don't have the luxury of just pretending like these sayings aren't out there or not really thinking about them very carefully or just ignoring them altogether. We don't have the luxury to do that for ourselves, for those around us, for the culture at large, or for the glory of God. We must be equipped and we must equip the church, as I said, to think carefully and to refute them clearly. And to that end, we come today to a fifth of these cultural creeds, 
which is that statement which says trans rights are human rights. Trans rights are, are human rights, which, of course, when we say trans rights, what we're talking about are transgender individuals, that, that increasing category of people who have come to identify with a gender that's different than their biological sex. It'd be an overstatement to say that has exploded in the world around us, particularly just in the last 10 years since 2013, traceable maybe to two significant moments or two significant events. One of them would be the overturning of DOMA by the Supreme Court in the year 2013. DOMA, of course, refers to the Defense of Marriage Act. That was a watershed moment in our culture, not only for redefining marriage, but for rethinking entire categories of sexual morality. Since that time, there has been a groundswell of public sentiment in favor of trans rights, a groundswell of young people even who are, or who are identifying uh, or being diagnosed as gender dysphoric. That actually was a new label itself in 2013, which was another sort of turning point. Up until 2013, the kind of symptoms that uh, are uh, sort of associated with gender dysphoria were known as the gender identity disorder. That was the label that had been used for the previous 30 years, which is about as far back as the whole concept goes in the medical community. But in 2013, it was changed to gender dysphoria. Up, to, up until that time, it had been a... Uh, it had been a diagnosis, uh, this gender identity disorder had been a diagnosis which was limited to some extent to a small uh, minority of biological males who felt some distress over their biological gender, which for many of them resolved itself as they transitioned out of adolescence and into adulthood. But things began to dramatically change 10 years ago, where suddenly with this new sort of label, this new diagnosis, there was a sea change in what was happening in the culture and what was happening in our nation. Gradually, over the next three or four years, from 2016 to 2017, there was a 300% surge in gender surgeries and gender dysphoria diagnosed for females. To the point today, just 10 years after the diagnosis was introduced, where some 70% of those who are, who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria or go, undergo gender surgery and hormone treatment, 70% of them are females, mostly adolescent females. Now, of course, there have been voices that have pushed back against that, particularly from female doctors who have claimed that this sharp rise is not only unprecedented, but it's unwarranted. They suggest that many of these girls who are subject to gender transition surgeries and hormone treatment, they're just struggling with the same dynamics that most adolescent girls have struggled with throughout time. They're struggling to come to terms with their female bodies and they're developing female bodies, and that brings with it the sort of typical social difficulties that produces anxieties and other mental health challenges in young girls as it has throughout all the ages. But by and large, those have been the minority of voices. The culture at large has pushed back, sometimes citing studies that show a high correspondence between suicide and those who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria. This due 
partly to sort of the mental health struggles, the internal struggles that they have, and do outward, uh, partly because of the outward resistance, the criticisms that they feel, which only sort of compound their sense of, of isolation and depression and loneliness, all of these things making them feel bullied leads to a massive mental health crisis. And so, because of all of that, there has now been generated a whole uh, series of conversations about what are known as human rights or dignity for those who are in the trans community. In fact, in 2017, there was one group who drew up what they called the Yogyakarta Principles. These were principles that were supposed to address this issue of human rights for those who identify as something other than their biological sex. They were building on previous documents that had been sort of Uh, put together for other people who were uh, outside of traditional classifications, homosexuals and and such, who were outside of traditional uh, uh, sexual roles. But these specifically were addressed towards transgender people. And in the preamble of that document, it states this, quote, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. All human rights are universal, interdependent, indivisible, and interrelated. Sexual orientation and gender identity are integral to every person's dignity and humanity and must not be the basis for discrimination or abuse, end quote. Now, that certainly sounds noble enough, maybe worthy of support. I mean, who would ever want to sort of challenge anyone's dignity or, or human rights, uh, who would ever want to stand against something like that? Unless you stop to ask some basic questions first. Where do your ideas of human rights come from? What is the basis of your concept of dignity? How do we understand the whole idea of human rights? Is it just simply self-proclaimed by any subcategory group of people who may feel that their dignity is not being respected, which could be obviously associated with any number of subgroups, homosexuals, transgenders? What about pedophiles, polygamists, other groups? Are they also entitled to the same sort of dignity and admission of their rights? then are trans rights the same as human rights? Have we really come to understand that? Well, this morning, I want to take some time to to think about that particular issue. I want to talk to you this morning about two competing approaches that establish individual dignity and basic human rights, but they're they're really going to help us understand this larger issue of transgenderism. It might help us understand the question of of, of how someone could claim that trans rights are human rights or how they could make the claim that I'm a, a woman trapped in a man's body and you're supposed to affirm that. In spite of everything that your sort of cognitive mind and your experience and even your observation would tell you, you are supposed to affirm that as a basic principle of human dignity. Well, there are two competing approaches to establishing what dignity is and what human rights are. The first one, we could just say, is this. 
that human rights and dignity are in the individual's psychology with the affirmation of society. That's how some people view dignity, and so that's how they define human rights. Dignity is something that comes from the affirmation of other people. And for other people not to affirm is for them to challenge your basic dignity, even your very rights. Now, it's certainly true that people may not always treat you with dignity, You may not always feel like they are respecting your rights. You might feel at times like your basic rights or your basic humanity are being violated in some way, but that's quite different from saying that dignity comes from other people, as if they're the ones who grant you the dignity that they're violating. And yet that is, unfortunately, the way many people have come to understand the issue of dignity and human rights. They have we might say, internalized and psychologized it without realizing or really detached it from any really exterior anchor, any reality. So now dignity is thought of as the affirmation of other people. Now, it's really critical for you and me to understand this if we are to understand the issue of transgenderism. It's really critical that we understand this issue of dignity and human rights. You, you have to begin by understanding the concept of dignity that has been internalized or psychologized and that this trend has been taking place for a very long time. In fact, it was the 18th century where you might really kind of begin your trajectory with the age of enlightenment and particularly secular humanism, which was beginning to spread throughout all of Europe and Western, uh, and Western society. Secular humanism is basically that philosophy that believes that human beings are the starting point for all serious philosophical and moral inquiry. It all begins with human beings. Secular humanism made that significant fundamental shift away from God and towards humans, and it made the sort of uh, related shift that man is basically uh, neutral or innocent. He isn't sinful, and that from that sort of stance of, of neutrality or even in some ways positivity, he can reason up from that to a morality and to a sort of philosophical worldview that is coherent and consistent. You see, for centuries, Western society had been under the influence of Christianity, which basically taught that humans are inherently corrupt from the inside, that we are born corrupt, corrupted by human nature inherited from Adam. But secular humanists began to suggest the opposite. They began to suggest that man is inherently innocent. And that the problems that man faces are not primarily those that arise from within, from a corrupted heart, but those that come from the outside, from his environment, from his upbringing, from society around him, from his, from his parents, from his education, from all those other kinds of things. And so there was a shift from viewing the fundamental problems of man as inward problems to the fundamental problems of man as outward problems of his or her environment. Bad behavior now was blamed not primarily on your heart, but primarily on society around you, what they did or what they didn't do for you. And the primary aim of life became 
to break free from all of these influences and to get back to your true self, your natural self, the self that was there before it began to be corrupted by all of society around you. From that, develop this idea that society is really a successive series of oppressions on this natural state of men and women. Men and women are constantly being oppressed and suppressed and stifled by the expectations of society around them, not just from society, but the expectations particularly of those who had control of society, those who controlled the expectations, those who sort of set the standards, whether it is the the kings and the monarchs or in some ways even your own sort of patriarchal history, your family. You have to strive to break free from all of that oppression Now, this naturally gave rise to what is sometimes called the cult of youth. That fundamental idea, which is grounded in this concept that the longer you have been in society, the more corrupt you have become, the more you have been corrupted by it. Those who are newer, that is those who are younger, are less likely to have been corrupted. And so it's therefore the young who are more likely to see things more clearly. They're more likely to have insight. They're more likely to know how things really ought to operate. And it's the older who, are, who, have, who have been either unable or unwilling to act according to what is their true natural state. They have, they have simply capitulated or conformed to everything around them. They're no longer willing to fight back against all the corrupting influences, they have now become a part of the problem. It's youth who have the insight. And so the critical thing, whether or not you're young or whether you're old or whatever it is, the critical thing is to recognize that that this is where you are. You're a victim of the environment around you. You're a victim of society in some fashion, and you have to recognize that victimhood. You have to break free from all that victimhood. Measure how you are a victim. Understand how much of a victim you are versus other people. Of course, this um, all sort of took a more uh, sort of codified form in the writings of Karl Marx about a hundred years after it arrived on the scene in, in Europe when he took this to a sociological level and really defined history as this constant struggle between classes of people, the oppressor and the oppressed, and and even took sort of particular focus on the economic dynamics of all that. But the fundamental idea was already there before Marx. It was rooted in secular humanism. The problem was society. The problem was its ideals, which were there in order to keep you in line with those ideals, to make you conform and thus to oppress you. Today, this philosophy has certainly taken hold of Western society and everyone is encouraged now to question these ideals, these traditions, these standards, to overthrow the oppressive expectations of the world and of society, to recognize its attempt to make you a victim. And those who claim victim status are to be affirmed, and those who will not affirm them are simply trying to perpetuate their power. They're trying to perpetuate the structures that are oppressing people. This explains why if you begin to question some of the moral choices that people are making, they assume 
that you're not really trying to make a truth claim. You're just expressing your feelings as a speaker. This is uh, in technical terms called emotivism, but it's this idea that that everyone's claims are, are not really claims about truth. They're just claims about their feelings. They're just trying to protect their version of society. They're trying to project their feelings on you. That's all it is. It has nothing to do with truth or error, just them and their feelings. That's why criticism, whether it's criticism of homosexuality or whatever, it's now a phobia. It's homophobia. Or if it's criticism of transgenderism, it's what? It's transphobia. The whole idea is that it's rooted in some sort of irrational emotion, some fear, not in any kind of reasoned or, or rational or coherent argument. Carl Truman says this, he says, quote, the use of the term phobia is deliberate and effectively places such criticism of the new sexual culture in the realm of the irrational and points toward an underlying bigotry on the part of those who hold such views, end quote. So if you're trying to uphold anything that might align with traditional moral standards, you're just trying to protect your privileged position. You're you're trying to be recognized as morally superior and you're trying to repress others who are not like you. And to argue that any particular sexual ethic is superior to someone else is just an expression of your irrational fears, your aesthetic preferences that are rooted in your cultural conditioning. That's it. Just your own prejudice and your own desire to be superior. In fact, you're not even allowed to to criticize the consequences of someone else's moral choices because that would just be another expression of your own fears. And so if they are out there and they're experiencing all the ill sort of results of their, of their sexual uh, deviations from the moral codes and they're having the consequences that they're facing, those things are to be addressed and those things are, going to be, are, are to be talked about in technical and in medical terms, but not in moral terms. So it's no longer the homosexual behavior that's killing people. It's just the AIDS. It's just the diseases. And they have to find a technical or a medical treatment. And that's the only level of conversation you're allowed to have. You're never allowed to suggest that there could be actual moral reasons behind some of these things. Again, because for secular humanism, all the problems are external. They're not internal. They're all external. Corruptions are all from the outside, not from the inside. Now, of course, this is absolutely contrary to what God tells us. He tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one, There's none who understands. All of them have turned aside. They together have become worthless. That's the declaration of the Scripture that every person who's ever born in this world has been born, in the words of Ephesians chapter 2, children of disobedience or children of wrath. We're born that way. We're born with the nature of that wants to disobey God's moral standards, and we're born with a nature that is destined and deserving of God's wrath. Romans 6 actually says that it's a kind of enslavement. You are actually a slave of your sin. 
that the oppression that you're feeling is not oppression that is coming from anyone on the outside. The oppression that you are, are sensing and that you might be blaming on other people is actually oppression that's coming from your own heart, from your own enslavement to your own desires. And the wages of that sin, the wages of those desires is your own destruction. You are earning your own destruction by the moral choices that you're making. That whole system, that whole worldview, of course, flies in the face of everything that we hear around us. It is, in fact, labeled as part of the problem. Just another attempt to oppress other people by opposing on them or imposing on them a standard that isn't natural to who they are and is actually asking them to live a lie. Live a lie, meaning live something that is inauthentic to who they are in their natural state. And if you attempt to criticize based on that kind of a traditional system, it's just simply a reflection of how you've allowed yourself to be corrupted by the systems around you. Your role is not to demand that people conform It is to recognize their freedom, to want them to be free, to be authentic, to be true to themselves. And all of this, of course, plays into the modern day prominence of libertarianism, libertarianism whose fundamental idea is sort of live and let live, as Thomas Jefferson says, as long as it doesn't, it does me no injury, it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg, I have no interest in opposing it. That is the essence of libertarianism. And and so this is your role now. Your role is not to criticize, it is to affirm. That's why people make the claim today that therapy is morality. Therapy is morality. The new moral demand is that you be attentive to the feelings of other people. And that you would not violate those feelings to affirm their feelings. To fail to do that is to oppress and to attempt to suppress them. It is to, in some ways, do violence to them, possibly psychological, emotional damage, maybe even drive them to their own sort of self-damage and self-harm. So human rights now are framed psychologically, internally and psychologically. They're established by having the people around you affirm the feelings that you have about yourself and never criticize or challenge those things. Now, what no one really prepared themselves for in this whole sort of enterprise is how this new kind of therapeutic morality would create unintentional clashes between the feelings of different groups of people, particularly now between feminism and transgenderism. The whole movement is being exposed because people have uh, grounded their human rights in this idea of uncritical affirmations on all points of view, but now The points of view of women are being brought into conflict with points of view from transgender people, and the whole thing is starting to buckle because transgender women are demanding access not only to women's dressing rooms and bathrooms, 
but their overnight shelters, their prisons, even their sports teams. It's putting biological women in situations where they find themselves, if not victims to predatory men, at least victims of being dominated once again by men who are born with natural, physical, and biological advantages over them. And it is closing off opportunities for women. And to criticize any of this is to commit the sin of being transphobic and doing harm, even violence to people. That's been developing really for a couple of decades, but it really really sort of lit up the sky in December of 2019 with one very well-known social media post by J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series, a woman who had sort of come up herself out of some sort of rough uh, background and out of a very impoverished situation at one point not even able to pay her rent. But she started to write books in her 30s which became very popular, made her wildly successful and brought her a lot of money. She was in many ways the icon of feminism and the hero of a whole generation of people who were raised reading her books and watching the movies that came out of them But they were shocked in December of 2019 when she posted this to social media. Quote, dress however you please, call yourself whatever you like, sleep with any consenting adult who'll have you, live your best life in peace and security. But to force women to affirm the lie of transgenderism, she said, is unacceptable. The backlash was overwhelming. A whole generation of kids, as I said, who had grown up on Harry Potter and adored J.K. Rowling suddenly found themselves in major conflict in their own hearts and minds with what to do with their supposed hero. Rowling was uh, immediately denounced from so many different groups, canceled by so many Vendors and bookstores, even sort of fan clubs shut down uh, over her. The characters who played uh, the, the, her, uh, the, the Hollywood stars who played her characters from the books on the big screen marched out to denounce her. But there were others, uh, even liberal women, who came to her support trying to give strength to her voice to talk about the problem of making women vulnerable to men in this way. The problem with that is that they didn't know how. They didn't have the basis. They they knew that women were being severely disadvantaged now in this modern paradigm and that the system ironically had resulted in the undoing of a century of effort in gaining equal access and equal rights and protections for women, but because their whole concept of dignity was grounded simply in the psychological well-being of other people, they couldn't make compelling arguments for why transgender women 
shouldn't be protected from criticism and in fact why they shouldn't be affirmed in everything they wanted to pursue. And to, to try to articulate any criticism was to fall prey to the accusation that these women were just simply doing all of this out of their own self-interest, maybe to protect their own privileged status as binary females. And so people began to realize that once you psychologize the needs of individuals and that becomes the driving force for dignity and human rights, you're destined for these inevitable conflicts with no way to resolve them. Even to listen to Rowling herself, it's, it's really sad. Obviously a very bright lady, but unable to find any coherent voice to really say what is wrong with what she's feeling uh, deep down in her soul. Speaking of conflicts of interest, we should add another emerging conflict of interest, that between parents and children, adolescent children, most of whom don't understand any of these dynamics but are being used as pawns in what is essentially a massive social experiment. Truman writes this, he says, quote, the long-term impact of hormone treatment and gender transition surgery is unknown, but the current state of evidence suggests that such will not prove to be the simple cures for the underlying problem of kids with adolescent anxiety. In addition, the question of when and how to administer such treatment is vexed even within the medical profession. And then here's the real Achilles heel of the movement that's likely to be found. It's easy to imagine, he says, that in 30 or 40 years' time, adults who uh, yeah, adults who were used as, in effect, experimental subjects for their parents' trendy gender ideology and subsequently had their minds, bodies, and lives traumatized by medical treatment will sue their parents, the doctors, and the insurance companies who finance the whole mess, end quote. We're barely 10 years into this. I can only guess whether or not Truman is right, but I was struck by the powerful testimony of 19-year-old Chloe Cole just a few weeks ago before Congress. This brave young girl sat and spoke to all of these congressmen. She said, my name is Chloe Cole. I used to believe I was born in the wrong body, and the adults in my life whom I trusted affirmed my belief, and this caused me lifelong irreversible harm. I speak to you today as a victim of one of the biggest medical scandals in the history of the United States. She goes on to say, At age 12, I began to experience what my medical team would later diagnose as gender dysphoria. I was well into early, early puberty, and I was very uncomfortable with the changes that were happening to my body. I was intimidated by male attention, and when I told my parents that I felt like a boy. In retrospect, all I meant was that I hated puberty and that I wanted this newfound sexual tension to go away. And when she suggested to her parents that sometimes this even made her feel depressed and possibly even suicidal, they sought out medical attention and they received what so many parents receive in these days, the simple question from a doctor, would you rather have a dead daughter or a living transgender son? as if those were the only choices. The result is a girl who underwent surgeries and hormone treatments that have forever disfigured her body, now at age 19, 
and having matured to adulthood, realizing that she was massively deceived by her doctors. But all of it was driven by one simple notion, that the only right thing to do in that situation, the only moral thing to do when someone claims to feel conflicted in their, agenda, in their gender is to affirm them. That is the new human right. Never criticize them. Never attempt to impose on them your moral structures, your moral ideals. Uphold their basic dignity by affirming their inner feelings. The result of that approach is beginning to real, really reveal itself in tragic consequences across our nation. Is there any solution for all this? Well, yes, there is. And it's a second approach to understanding human rights and dignity, which is foundational in the Scripture. And that is that human dignity and human rights are found in the image of God by His authority as our Creator. The reason we as humans have dignity is because we have been created in God's image. That's where it comes from. That's what gives us dignity. That's the foundation of our basic rights. We might have all kinds of feelings along the way, feelings about how we're treated or how others might look at us or a whole mass of other things. We might at times even experience our rights violated, but no one No one can ever take them or give them to us. They don't come from the affirmation of other people. They come from one thing only, from our maker and our creator who made us in his image. To use the the term from the Declaration of Independence, they are our inalienable rights. We are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights rights that cannot be taken away. Now, that is an original to our our nation's Declaration of Independence. It comes from the Scripture. The whole idea arises out of the Bible because it is the only sound and legitimate foundation for establishing human dignity and human rights. When God created humanity, He created us in His image, and that image is fundamental to our dignity. Now, of course, in saying all that, we then have to acknowledge that one very important aspect of that image, among other things, is a distinction in genders. He created us in His image, but in that image, He created us male and female. That's what Genesis 1.27 God cre- says. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in our distinct genders, you as a man or you as a woman, whether it's a, a young boy or girl or whatever it might be, you have dignity. You have, you have rights. You have worth in that sense because you no matter what your gender, are made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. You remember this when we studied back just a few uh, months ago in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus was talking about the whole institution of marriage and he drew attention to this point. 
He says, he, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And we talked about then how this idea of the image of God was uh, sort of this notion of a reflection of God. That's what an image typically did in the ancient world. It was supposed to reflect the reality of some deity or some even, even a, a, an emperor or a king or pharaoh or something. It represented them and their authority and their rule. And so we, when we're created in the image of God, we are then given by extension the mandate of God to exercise dominion over the face of the earth. And we're doing that by delegation and by authority of God. We are, we might say it this way, extending God's dominion through us over the face of the earth. And one of the fundamental aspects of that dominion and that exercise of our role as, uh, as uh, God's image is the distinction in the genders. He created us male and female, and he commanded that we be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and take dominion over it. So it is fundamental to our, our, our basis as human beings and human dignity that we have gender distinctions, that we honor and recognize those gender distinctions, and that within those distinctions, we honor one another as the image of God. We celebrate those things. Anyone who would suggest to you that those kinds of distinctions are somehow inherently repressive doesn't understand the beauty of what God has put together. They are, in fact, inherently creative. They give life. That's what they're designed to do, to produce new life. In fact, God created man and he took a woman out of man. He created two from one, but then he immediately mandated that they would come together, that they would leave their father and mother and be joined together in marriage and that the two would become once again one flesh. There's a one flesh union that is, that is uh, sort of uh, established or comes out of this gender distinction and all of it reflecting in a beautiful way on the image of God. This is now fundamental. It's fundamental to humanity. And as I said back then when we were looking at Matthew chapter 19, for anyone who tries to upend that or deny that or suppress that, they're suppressing the very, the very image of God that is in us as men and women, as male and female. In fact, I think it's safe to say that when they're doing that, they're not just suppressing the image of God, they're dehumanizing They're making you something other than God made you. They're making you less than human. They are infringing on your dignity. They're infringing on your basic rights as a human being. Whether they are are subject to that by other people or whether they are convinced to do it to themselves. They're being dehumanized. In fact, any sin that comes into your life that causes you to rebel really against that whole role that God has given you as the image of God, any of those things which uh, that, that, that take the gifts that God has given you in your intellect and your rationality and your spirituality, those unique things with which God has equipped us to fulfill our role as, as uh, images of God, any of those things which come in and corrupt all that, all of those things to some extent 
are making you less than what God has created you to be, and they are, in that sense, dehumanizing. You see, we were created to be reflections of God's glory. As men and women, in both genders, to reflect the glory of God. We were created that way, but we were corrupted. Sin came in, and it corrupted all of those things. It corrupted not only our hearts, but our minds and our spirits. Corrupted even our bodies. These bodies that we have now are fallen, just like our spirits are fallen, and that brings with it all the kind of consequences that sometimes plunge people into depression and into anxieties, into even sort of the discomforts that they have with their own body. Sometimes uh, we might even say into sort of the social dynamics that they have to go through as they transition from childhood to adulthood. All of those things were less than what God originally designed us to be. We are here now groaning, the Bible says, groaning, wanting to be freed from the kind of corruption into which we've been born in these bodies. But that's the good news of the gospel, is that while your body may not be everything that it's meant to be, while it may not be everything you even want it to be, while you might be struggling with the way God's even made you, the hope of the gospel is that He can remake you. He will remake you. He'll remake you in heart and mind. He will wipe away all of the shame and the guilt and the anxiety. He will recreate your heart. And just as importantly, He'll recreate your body. One day in the resurrection, He promises, like the resurrection of our Savior, that all that's wrong with you that you think might be wrong with you right now is immaterial in the grand scheme of things because he's promised that you, just like every other person who puts their trust in Christ, you'll be raised from the dead in a glorified body, a body that's perfect, that's fit to serve him for all eternity, to interact with other human beings who have also been resurrected in a way that God originally intended for creation. See, that's, that's human rights. That's human dignity. And it only comes from one place. It only comes from one source. It only comes from God. You can't get it from other human beings, no matter how much they affirm you or don't affirm you. They can't take it away from you. None of that has anything to do with anything. And it isn't really a, an issue of whether or not you feel or don't feel what your internal psychological state is or not. It only has to do with one issue. Who made you? And why did he make you? And what, what is the purpose and how do you reconcile yourself to all of that? Well, there's only one way to be reconciled to that. The only way. The only way to be reconciled to any of that is through the gospel. Through confessing the corruption of your own heart. You see, it's all internal. The issues all arise from the brokenness of your life and the brokenness of your mind and the brokenness of your spirit. It all arises from what's internal, from from the corruption that has come from your own sin. But you're not stuck there. You may be enslaved to sin right now, but you're not stuck there because someone has come to set you free. They've come to free you not only from your sin and your shame and your guilt, but they come to free you 
for all eternity into a new service, a service of light and truth and righteousness. That's human dignity. That's where it comes from. And anyone who tells you anything else is telling you a lie. In fact, they're telling you a lie which in itself cannot stand. It will implode on itself. They may be affirming you now, but you give it time. And now the demands will come on you to affirm all these other things, some of them which are your mortal enemy, the very things that will destroy you, you're being asked to affirm. That's not God's world. And that's not his truth. And it's not the pathway of salvation. And it's no wisdom. And it's no new morality. It's no religion that you want to be a part of. What you want to be a part of, what you want to be a part of is the kingdom of righteousness. The kingdom of God's son. If you're here this morning and and you are one of those people who struggled in any of those ways, this message is for you. It's to tell you that God is able to transform your heart, to satisfy all the anxieties that you might have there, to bring you into full, full union and full fellowship with him and to give you the kind of heart that is at peace. If you're here this morning and, and uh, you are pressured by whatever sources are out there, Sources at work, sources in the family, they want you to just sort of comply and to affirm and to tell you that if you don't do that, you're bigoted, don't give in. That is not the way of God, and it's not the loving thing to do for other people. It's not the ultimate solution for them. The solution is to tell them where true dignity comes from, where do true rights come from. They come only from one source, and the source they have to turn to is God. I pray that we as a church will be equipped and ready for that day when we must stand for that truth. Father, we're grateful for this reminder and and, and the clarity with which your word speaks to these issues. As we said at the beginning, these are not difficult in the sense that the truth is unclear, but they may be difficult when they bring with them all the criticisms and all the pressures of the world. It has been coming for some time, but it's all rooted in the same place. Men and women unwilling to admit their sin, eager to shift the blame on everything outside of them. But there's no need for that. There's no need for that because you, by your mercy, you have granted us forgiveness the freedom of cleansing through the cross of our Savior. We're so grateful for that, grateful for the truth of that, grateful for how we are equipped with the answers that the world needs. I pray that you would make us clear-minded in the proclamation of it. We ask in Christ's name, amen.